Father, I pray your truth will reign as you promise it will. Not only in the day to come, when every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess, but in our day today, in our hearts, as it comes to reside in us, to teach us about you and to reveal to ourselves our sin and our need for holiness and putting us, Father, in a position of dependence on you, it will call us into a life that follows and obeys. And we thank you that we have a small church that is focused on this very task, the task of submitting to your word and to the counsel of your spirit and then putting it into the action of how we live our lives, how we project our witness to the world. We thank you for that ministry and for our, each of our individual contributions to it, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to serve. And I pray, Father, that what I speak as I go into the scriptures and endeavor to teach would be according to your spirit as always. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Genesis 22, that classic moment of Abraham on the mount with his son, with Isaac, under God's instruction, preparing to sacrifice his son. You know, you have to wonder, did he ever stop to think that I hear this right? As we said last week, am I sure this is what he's asking me to do? There's a great story I heard of a church that had an experience that reminds us of the importance to make sure we hear properly when we're trying to do the right thing in the faith. They were going to conduct a retreat for ladies, a ladies retreat, and it was going to be at a rustic setting. I don't know if you've ever seen these kinds of retreats where they decide they're going to go to some camp and it's got cabins. If you've ever done one of these retreats, men or women, you know, your first concern when you're about to go to one of these places and you don't know what the facilities are like and you hear it's rustic. That's a word that means something, right? And usually not good things. And your first concern is what are the facilities going to be like? But that's usually our first concern. What am I going to find when I get there? And there's this very proper elderly lady who was invited as part of the ladies group to go. And she wanted to go, but she had that thought on her mind, too. What are the facilities going to be like? And she thought she needed to clarify so she could understand whether she should go or not. And she wrote a letter to the church, to the staff. And as she's writing a letter, she's thinking, I don't even want to say the word toilet. These things just were too much for her. She was so proper about it. So she thought, I I want to just use a polite abbreviation, but she couldn't think of one. What do you write? T? I mean, what does that mean? B for bathroom? She didn't really know what to say. So she came up with bathroom commode, which would be BC. So she writes this nice little letter to the church, assuming they'll figure out what she's talking about just by the context. So she says, does the cabin where I'm going to stay have its own BC? And if not, where is the BC located? And she writes this letter. And of course, when the staff gets the letter, they're befuddled. They have no idea what she's talking about. And they pass the letter around among the staff saying, does anybody have a clue what this lady's asking? And finally, one of the secretaries said, oh, I think I know what she's looking for. She said, this is a Baptist church that's coming for this retreat. And I'm sure they were interested in worshiping while they're here. So they're asking, where's the local Baptist church? And so they write back a nice letter to this lady just to help her out. So this is the letter. He says, I regret our delay in answering your letter, but we take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campground. It's capable of seating 250 people at one time. Now, I admit it is quite a distance if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my husband and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand the whole time we were there. 
It does pain us that we're not able to go more regularly, but it surely is by no lack of desire. As we grow older, it seems to be more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. (laughs) If you do decide to come to our retreat, we could go with you the first time and introduce you to all the folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. You can see right there that if you're not clear on communicating, you know, you're likely to get things wrong in a hurry. And that's what I'm sure Abraham was worried about. How I'm going to make a transition back into Genesis 22 at this point, I have no idea. But we're just going to go forward from there. We're going to pick up, as I said, in verse 9. Abraham here standing on the top of Mount Moriah, preparing to do something unthinkable, not just for us, but probably for him as well. He's sacrificing his only son. And we stopped at the moment where he had literally drawn the knife in that dramatic scene. And he was preparing to complete the sacrifice. And as he's in this moment about to act, he must have been warring within himself. Doubts, fears. Will I really be able to do this? How will it feel to watch my son die? Just the unimaginable. The father in heaven must have been feeling something similar as he put his own son on the cross. In ways we don't fully understand a similar moment pictured by this moment. But we also know Abraham is not operating here by sight. He's operating here by faith. And so as he prepares to complete the command God has given, God intervenes. We'll start a couple verses back from where we left off. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Well, this is the reprieve that Abraham had probably been hoping for, if not expecting. He's bound his grown son, as we said last week, we Notice he placed him on top of the wood and then on top of the altar. He had stretched out his hand. He had the knife ready to go. And as we mentioned last week, this is not a plunge like you would think in a horror movie. This is a very specific sacrificial act. He's about to draw the knife across his son's throat, which would have been the the way of drawing the blood from an animal and perform the sacrifice. And we also noted last week it was remarkable that his son here, Isaac, who's grown, he's a grown man, at least past child years at some point. This is a man who carried the wood for his own sacrifice up this mountainside. And it was remarkable for us to notice that his son is not resisted, not in the least, the whole way through this process. Sooner or later, he figured out what dad was up to, whether it came on the walk up the mountain or whether it came as the father was binding him. It certainly came by the time his father placed him on top of the wood. He figured out what dad was going to do. And though scripture doesn't record any conversation between these two in the moment that they had at the top of the mountain, I tend to think some words were exchanged, something. And whatever was said, you have to marvel at Isaac, at his submitting to his father's authority under these circumstances. And we do typically focus on Abraham, which is natural, and we'll come back to him here soon enough. But let's not lose sight of Isaac's obedience to his own father here in this moment, because in reality, Isaac's obedience is yet another reflection on Abraham, on Abraham's faith and Abraham's strength as a father. That's evident also in Isaac's behavior. Abraham has raised a son who respected his father's authority so much that he would submit to this kind of a moment. 
That's a humbling perspective for a father, because though I would take some measure of pride in my kids from time to time concerning their obedience, they have good days, they have bad days, of course, like every kid. I can't say for certain what they would do under these circumstances. What would their response have been? And we understand that Isaac's obedience to his father was also a reflection of Isaac's own understanding of God and of God's demands and God's requirement for obedience. So it's not strictly Isaac obeying a man. He, he must have understood God's presence in the whole process, of course. But it does reflect on Abraham. It reflects on a strong parental child relationship that must have been formed over many years that then resulted in Isaac having an obedient heart for something like this. The obedience of this child is actually modeled on the obedience of his father to the Lord. Abraham's obedience to the father. You know, scriptures talk a lot about submission to authority and not just in the idea of us submitting to the Lord, but that's just one aspect of submission. Submission goes in every which direction of scripture from husband and wife and parent to child and worker to their master and slave to their owner. And there's a lot of different avenues of submission discussed in Scripture. But what is consistent across all of them is for it to be effective, for it to be present in our lives. It has to be taught, it has to be modeled, and it has to be reinforced. And ultimately, the way we do that is by drawing a connection between parental and child relationships and our relationship to the Lord. Do for me as I do to the Lord. I think that's one of the reasons why Scripture requires that elders, pastors, leaders in general have obedient, believing children. It's because it is a means of reflection on how that individual themselves walks and then models that behavior. Now, let's be clear, because at this point, thoughts will come to everyone's mind about How are we to guarantee our children do anything? And the answer is we can't. There are no guarantees in life concerning our kids, least of all how they themselves choose to walk with the Lord, if at all. But Scripture does tell us to anticipate obedient, submitted relationships if we make a priority of establishing those. They are contagious to some degree. For example, if the father is submitted and obedient to the Lord, then I think it's more likely, not a guarantee, but more likely that the wife will be likely to follow in submission and obedience to both the Lord and to her husband. And if parents are obedient and submitted to the Lord and they demonstrate that pattern to their children, then I think there is a great propensity for the children to follow in those footsteps. No guarantees, but simply a general rule. And if you look at Isaac's behavior now and consider his obedience and submission, the logical conclusion we draw is that there was something going on in Abraham's family life with Isaac that gave Isaac reason to see submission and authority as a priority. Remember back in chapter 18 when God appears to Abraham prior to visiting Sodom and Gomorrah and he invited Abraham into the conversation about what was about to transpire in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he gave a reason for why it was important that he reveal this to Abraham. You remember what he said? The Lord said in verse 17 of chapter 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord Now, listen, by doing righteousness and justice, how did Abraham command his children? 
by doing righteousness and justice. By his lifestyle, he would become a man who then could command his children to be obedient to the way of the Lord. By modeling, he had the place of authority from which to command and influence his children. And for that reason, God said, I want to expose Abraham to who I am as a father, the father of mercy and justice at the same time as love and wrath, all sides of God. And that will give Abraham motivation to do the same within his family. So Abraham was to command his children to keep the way of the Lord and make it an imperative by his own lifestyle. But there's always an element of grace in the way God works in the lives of our children. You can't remove God's grace from the equation. It is not mechanical. No one creates a child of a certain style or, or nature merely by their own behaviors and choices. Oh, that it could be that way, right? But it is not. No child is perfect. Not even Isaac was perfect. We're going to see later, as we study more of Isaac's life, that he repeats many of the same mistakes, or at least one in particular, that Dad did. That is of lying concerning his wife, calling her his sister. The acorn never falls far from the tree, as the saying goes, right? But on our judgment day, then I'm speaking now to the parents in the room, on our judgment day, our test before the Lord will not be what our children did with their lives. That will not be our test. It will be what we did to model obedience and submission before them. And then did we command them to keep the way of the Lord? But what they did with that is on them, not on us. So just as Abraham modeled and commanded and Isaac obeyed in some cases and did not obey in all cases. Likewise, we have that same opportunity to demonstrate faith and obedience, but yet have the same dependence on God's grace for it to materialize in our kids' lives. So just as Abraham is ready to bring this knife down on Isaac's throat, then we saw the Lord intervene. And notice he calls out to Abraham, but he uses Abraham's name twice. It's meant as an imperative, partly because of the moment, right? He's got to stop Abraham before he takes any further steps. But it's also, I think, a sign of God's emphatic call, his emphatic interest in, in showing himself here to Abraham now for the eighth time. And Abraham's response is equally emphatic. Abraham says, here I am. You can probably appreciate how relieved Abraham was in the moment. To hear God intervene and faith in God, notwithstanding, Abraham must have rejoiced at the prospect that he didn't have to go through with what God had just called him to go do. That's the call from God. It comes here, we're told, from the angel of the Lord. Now, you all remember this. I know from past weeks we looked at the angel of the Lord at an earlier moment in the book of Genesis. And in that earlier time, we noticed that this phrase was a description of the second person of the Godhead. It is not literally an angel. It is literally Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. Notice in verse 12, you can see that for yourself here in the context. Look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord speaking says, you have not withheld your son from me. Which is clearly a reference to him being God, to being the Lord who made the request in the first place. So whoever this angel of the Lord is, it is self-evident he is identifying himself as the Lord. And we know from other scripture, this is Christ speaking to Abraham. And the Lord stops him. At that moment of truth. And he says to Abraham, you do not have to go through with this sacrifice after all. Now, his reason for stopping it, though, is he says, I know now that you fear the Lord and therefore you do not have to go through with this sacrifice. Since Abraham had come far enough and was evidently prepared to go through with it, he had met the test. But that raises a few questions for us. 
First, why did the Lord ask for the sacrifice in the first place, only to have him stop short of it in the end? We remember from the beginning this was called a test. As the chapter began, we were hearing this is a test. So we know from that phrase and from the way the whole story plays out, God never intended nor wanted a human sacrifice. What he wanted was an obedient and willing heart that would give anything up if requested as a sign of faith in God. In fact, there is only one time in all human history in which God has required a human sacrifice and allowed it to go through to completion. And that's when he sacrificed his own son on the cross. Never has he asked for that in any other context. And why? Because it does no good. It would accomplish nothing in eternal terms. The requirement that his son stand in our place was necessary for the sake of covering man's sin. For only a man can stand in the place of a man if the issue is one of atoning for sin. And more than that, the one who stands in our place must be fully innocent of sin themselves because if they had any of their own, then their death pays for no one else but themselves. But if you have no sin of your own, that can be a sacrifice that can be then appropriated by others who need that appropriation, who need that sacrifice in their place. But in Isaac's case, the guy had sin. He's not sinless. He's not God. He's just another man, Abraham's son. And as such, if he had been killed, if Abraham had gone through with the sacrifice in that moment and taken Isaac's life, the only thing that would have been accomplished by that, in terms of the actual sacrifice now, would have been that Isaac would have been paying for his own sin. There is no eternal benefit in this sacrifice. The benefit was met at the moment that Abraham's heart showed itself to be faithful. That was the full benefit of the opportunity. To actually kill someone now added nothing. But what it gave was a picture of the sacrifice that will mean something in the day that Christ accomplishes it. So God stops it. He stops it at the point that it's met its purpose. Anything beyond this would have been unnecessary. That leads, though, to a second question. How did this actually become a test? What was the test of this for Abraham? Since he didn't actually kill his son, how does the Lord know that he would have actually gone through with it? I mean, he stopped him right at the last minute, mind you, but there's a difference between being ready to do it and actually doing it. Well, the Lord says he knew something. I now know something. He knows something concerning Abraham's heart, that Abraham was acting out of fear of the Lord and out of that fear of the Lord, he brought Isaac to this point. God knew the heart of Abraham without it requiring that Abraham actually reveal that heart outwardly. Look at the term he uses here to describe what he came to know. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. That's a special term in Scripture. It all at once describes three things. Reverence for God, obedience to God, and genuine fear of God. I've heard a number of people over the years trying to teach about the idea of the fear of the Lord. And it always amazes me how hard they work to remove the word fear from the definition of fear of the Lord. Why are we so interested in saying it's not about really fearing him, it's about respecting him and having awe for him? Well, those things are true, too, but it also involves real fear. Real fear. The kind you have for a father in real life, a dad who is no nonsense about punishing mistakes in the family, who is an authoritarian with a just heart and a loving motive, but nonetheless is an authoritarian. If you had a dad like that, I, I did. There was real fear. You know where that fear kicked in, of course. It's when mom gave that much-hated phrase, 
wait till your dad comes home, right? The whole point was, you have reason to fear. And you knew what that felt like. Now, did I fear that he would kill me? No. Did I fear that he would hurt me in a serious way? No. Fear doesn't require that I have fear in those ways. I can just have fear for what he can do that's just and appropriate and still unpleasant. There is a place in our understanding of who God is to have what Abraham here is credited with having, and that is fear. Abraham, we know, has shown reverence for God. He did that just by his willingness to say, let us go to this mountain and worship. That's reverence for God, worshiping God. And he showed obedience. He came to this moment ready to sacrifice his son in obedience to God's commandment. So he is showing reverence. He is showing obedience. But there's also a place for fear. And I think he's showing real fear here. Fear is a natural and appropriate response when we come to really know who God is and follow God. Jesus himself used this word when he described how we should understand our relationship to the Father. He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, I say to you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He says, don't fear those who are your enemies on earth. Their power against you is so limited, it stops at the death of your body. What you want to concern yourself with is the one who determines the course not only of your earthly life, but who also holds all judgment over your soul. That's the one you ought to have some fear for. And on the day of judgment, when we fall into the hands of that living God, meaning come before him for our judgment, standing before him, seeking his mercy. Hebrews says this, 1030, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's obvious here we're not talking about a fear for our salvation. That was made certain with Christ's death and our acceptance of that sacrifice. So we're not talking about a fear to the question, will I be in heaven? No, that's not even in view for a believer. That doesn't mean there isn't reason to fear. Nonetheless, in that moment of our judgment, we'll have no power. We will have no appeal. There's no higher authority. Often in our life on earth, when we have bad things happening and we have fear about those bad things, we always have the chance in that moment to appeal to the Father and pray. And our fear can leave us through that because we can know that someone more powerful, someone who loves us and is over everything, can hear our appeal and respond. And I can let go of my fear because it's all with him. What happens when it's him we're in front of? That's where the fear is. An assessment of our work, an assessment of our reward, all of it on the line, no one else in view except he and I. And at that moment, the writer of Hebrews says, we will understand fear of the Lord. It'll be to our benefit if we understand it sooner. So that we'll act differently. If you marvel at Abraham here, if you marvel at what he's done and wonder, could I have done the same thing? Do I have that much faith? Could I have taken my son up on a mountain and so on? If you have that wonder, it may be because of our inability to grasp fear of the Lord. Because if you have a fear of the Lord, you'll do anything he asks. Reverence, obedience, and fear combine to produce a proper perspective on the holiness of God. And I think in this case, they give him the power to pass this test. Abraham then, it says, raised his eyes, verse 13. Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, 
as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. I find this fascinating. At this point, Abraham just notices, hey, look, there's a ram caught in the thorns right behind me all this time. You notice the Lord never directs him to look. It's just, oh, there's a ram there. Was it there the whole time? And he just missed it. You remember back in chapter 21 when Hagar is out in the desert and she's dying and so is her son and she's crying and so is he. And the Lord appears and says, don't worry, I've heard the cries of your son. And then the next thing you hear is Hagar looks up and, oh, there's a spring of water. God didn't tell her either, but it was there. God obviously made the provision available. It leaves an open question, though. Was it there from the beginning? Notice what Abraham says. He says, this ram will be sacrificed in place of my son. He's saying, Isaac was condemned to die. I walked up this mountain fully expecting to go through with what I was planning. I had no reason to think it wouldn't happen. I had prepared my heart. I'd spent three days walking with him. From Abraham's point of view, he was in the zone. He was walking up the mountain fully expecting to go through with this, and he had to probably psych himself up to do it a little bit. And then he sees the ram. He puts two and two together, and he says, Oh, God wasn't expecting this in the end. Thank God. And now this ram is in my son's place. It's like saying, my son has been given back to me from the dead. In a way, he had already put him in the category of dead by how he had to prepare himself to come into this moment. But yet, at the last minute, he was taken out of dead and moved back into life. And in its place, we put this ram. It's like he went and came right back. Here we see another parallel to Christ. Another exact parallel to Christ. We've been studying this along the way, right? Isaac is a picture of Christ and all the details of the story line up in a way that conform to what we know will happen with Christ when Christ was put on the cross. Jesus was dead and all of the disciples who saw that event fled in fear, thinking this is the end. This is the end of the whole thing. We thought it was going somewhere great. Now he's dead. Now what? And then within a few days before they know it, he's back again. And now they can't believe he's back. Because the whole thing seemed too amazing, too incredible. Hebrews makes the same point when it talks about this moment. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, we're told, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And then in verse 19, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. From which Abraham also received Isaac back from the dead and then as a picture of Christ, as a type. Now, you know where this is taking place? Moriah was the region that Abraham was told to go to. But Moriah eventually became Mount Moriah, the mountain of Moriah. Mount Moriah will later become the mountain upon which Solomon builds the temple. Mount Moriah later becomes the place of Jerusalem, the place where we know the Lord is crucified. Abraham was not just directed to any mountain. He was directed to the very place that God would provide a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of all men. And indeed, he made a provision in that way. And so the mount has forever been known, according to Moses, as the place in which God would make a provision. And sure enough, it was a prophetic statement that this is the place where God would eventually provide the Lamb of God. By the way, I think the reason this is a ram that's caught and not a lamb, which might have been a question in your mind, why not use the lamb instead of ram? That would have been a closer parallel. 
I think there's two reasons. One, lambs don't have horns, and you have to have a horn if you're going to get it caught in the thick. That's sort of contrived because he could have caught him another way. I know. I think it's so that you don't mistake who the real Lamb of God is. This is not the Lamb of God being sacrificed on the mountain. This is a picture of the Lamb of God. And to make clear that it's only a picture and not the real thing, it's a ram of God. Close, but not quite. Almost, but not the same thing. And intentionally so, because the real thing doesn't come until Jesus is put on the cross. Abraham and Isaac here give the world a beautiful example of God at work in Christ. But why do we have this example? Because Abraham feared the Lord and obeyed his voice and went through with this commanded sacrifice. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this picture. And Isaac, for his part, is a perfect picture of Christ being obedient to the Father, willingly putting himself on the cross. Genesis 22:15. let's go through the remainder of the chapter. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. I'm going to pause there because the balance of the chapter is a nice introduction into chapter 23 and into chapter 24. So we're going to put that aside for next week. For now, though, looking at what we have read here, the Lord is said to appear to Abraham now for the second time in Roughly the same moment. And yet again, you see the angel of the Lord here declaring himself to be God. Another example of that. He says to Abraham, I have sworn by myself. That is, he is sworn by his own name. You know, sometimes people say, I swear by God. I swear by this or I swear by that. God here is saying, I swear by myself. That I will indeed bless Abraham as The Lord has stated previously in all the previous examples of the covenant. And as you look at the list here from 16 down through 18, you have once again all the major tenets of the Abrahamic covenant spelled out yet once more. All the pieces. And since we have looked at these in the past, I don't intend to examine each again today. That's not necessary. But just to note, they're all there. It's a repeating of the covenant, including all the nations of the earth being blessed through Abraham's seed. So the promises aren't any different than he's heard before. But that raises the question, then why the repetition now? What is special about this moment? And this is the first time that the Lord has given the covenant in any of its forms with an oath, with an oath committing God to go through with what he's promising. In ancient times, if you wanted to be absolutely certain with someone that they would know you would keep your promise under some covenant or some agreement, you would take an oath. And the way an oath worked was very simple. I would swear against the name of some higher authority. Maybe it would be the king or the sovereign for the land that I occupy. For example, if you were in Abimelech's land in Gerar, you might swear by Abimelech. Or maybe it's a judge, someone who has legal authority under the legal system of your region. And so you'd swear by the name of the judge. In every case, though, what you were doing was invoking the authority of that higher power to hold you accountable should you fail to keep your word. So to put it in everyday language, what you're saying is, I swear that if I don't do what I'm saying I'm going to do, you can go tell King Abimelech 
that I swore by his name. And in doing so, I gave him free rights to hold me accountable for my failure to keep this covenant because I have invoked his name. And because I've invoked his name, if I fail, it sullies, it damages his reputation so he can act to protect his reputation by killing me. It's a very solemn thing. It was a commitment that you could never escape. And because you invoked the name of a third party who had higher authority, then you couldn't even go back on your word. You couldn't change your mind later because now Abimelech was involved and he wasn't about to ignore your failings because it reflected on him or on the judge or whomever. So that's what God has done now. God has made an oath swearing by a name. But in this case, there's no higher authority. There's no one else he can appeal to that has any more power than he does. So he makes an oath swearing by his own authority, by his own name. But here's what God just said. He's saying he is bound to put himself to death in order to ensure that he keeps his word to Abraham. He is binding himself to be put to death, if necessary, to keep the covenant with Abraham. The writer of Hebrews explains this passage also. Hebrews 6:13. The writer says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater... He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, Intersposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. He says when God wanted to leave Abraham with absolute assurance that God was going to keep his word, his solemn vow, he took an oath and he committed himself by this oath to the prospect of death, if necessary, in order To keep this vow. The death, of course, is the death Christ took on the cross. That was God dying. That was God putting himself to death because in the end, that was the only way in which God could keep his oath. The only way he could promise that Abraham and his descendants could live in the kingdom and have the blessings God has given would be if there was an atonement for sin. If God had not put himself to death, Those promises could never have been met. So he was making an oath, as the writer says here, to Abraham, so that Abraham would have strong encouragement, and by extension, so would we, because we share in the same promise, strong encouragement, it says, to take hold of the hope that is set before us. The hope has been set before us, but we still have to take hold of it. Now, Abraham had great reason to hope in the promises of God. Those promises had already brought him a son, but they would ultimately bring him a larger family in the kingdom. Those promises have already given him the chance to live freely in this land that's not his, but of course that's just a down payment. The ultimate promise was he would own all this land one day in the future. And they have led to blessings. Kings like Abimelech have blessed him. Others have given him blessing, and that's going to continue. But he's going to be blessed far beyond anything this world can offer when he gets into the kingdom. So he has reason to hope based on the promises he's been given. And those hopes were delivered to Abraham 
by way of God's word. And then secondly, through an oath. He has the solemnity of God's word and he has the unchangeableness of an oath. Two ways in which he can have reason to expect those promises to be fulfilled in the future. But he had to take hold of the hope. You notice he says, those who have taken refuge have reason to take hold of the hope. Who are those who have taken refuge in the promises of God? Believers, those who have come to believe in them and have received them. We've taken refuge in them. But that's different than taking hold of the hope. Taking refuge is faith alone. And the hope is available only to those who've taken refuge. It's not set before everyone. It's set before those who've taken refuge. But we can have the refuge without the hope if we let it sit there. I've met believers who, to me, don't appear to have taken hold of any hope. They're, for lack of a better word, they're miserable. They're miserable because of their own sin or others' sin or their discontentment with something in life. And and you look at those people and you want to say, you're the person the writer of Hebrews was talking about. You've taken refuge. God set a hope in front of you, but you're not taking hold of it. And what was the hope? It's not about this world. Fundamentally, it's not about the earthly needs and desires of our life. Those things have a place, but that's not the hope. That's not the heart of what he gave us in the promises. He gave us a heart to know that one day we'll be free of the sin that we have because we'll receive a new body. And we have a hope to know we'll live in an eternal realm with him in a sinless form. We have a hope to know we'll have an internal inheritance in that new place. And we have a hope to be with him always in his presence. These are hopes that come with the promises. We don't see them yet. That's why they're, quote, set before us. They're not in our existence yet. So I either have to take hold of it, believe it, and act accordingly, or I can let it just sit there. I'll still be in his refuge, but I'm walking around not holding on to something that's been set before me and I could have if I wanted. It's a perspective issue. It's a maturing in the faith issue, but it requires us to make a decision. We take hold of a hope and a blessing knowing God will keep his word. He's already done it. He's already put himself to death as his oath required. Paul says we're to set our mind on it. Like when Paul runs the race, he sets his mind on the future and not on the past. He sets his mind on what God has presented for him. He runs for the prize, for the eternal prize that comes as a result. That's our opportunity. Let's go out of here today hoping for what God has promised and seizing that hope in place of what we concern ourselves with too often in this world, which is what we have and don't have, what we like and don't like. Abraham put his son on the wood like the father did to Jesus on the cross. And he did it because of a fear of the Lord. And the Lord's response is, if you know me and fear me in that way, then I want to give you all the confidence in the world to seize the hope that comes with that faith. Let's give the Lord the praise. Father, I thank you that you have given us not only the refuge, but the hope. The hope for better things to come. And a confidence that all that we see in this world is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. Hope is contagious, Father. Peter says that we should be ready at all times to give a defense to those who ask for the hope that is within us. For those who would see that hope and question, where did it come from and why do you have that perspective? And that would be our opportunity to share our faith. What a shame it would be if the hope set before us, we never seize and never show to others so that they never ask that question. Let us be witnesses through our hope, Father, as much as by our words and use it to glorify yourself. And I ask, Father, we'd come back in weeks to come as we continue to study with this hopefulness always in view as we study what men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and others do.
We'd learn some lessons along the way about ourselves and our own faults and our need to change and, and follow you better and so on. But, but all the while, Father, look at the men as men who had hope, who lived according to that hope as well, and encourage us to do the same. Thank you, Father, for the service and the gifts of so many who come each week and all that you do to make this Sunday afternoon uh, possible, Father, Sunday morning and, and the day as a whole. I ask that you continue to give us this blessing indefinitely until you come back in your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.